0: podcast, Duets from the Trenches, Musicians You Should Know. My name is Nick Drozdoff, a.k.a. Studio Man, and I'll be your host. Okay, that sobriquet is a bit of an inside thing. For a couple of reasons, when I first showed up in Maynard Ferguson's band several decades ago, one member dubbed me Studio Man, because I always walked around in a corduroy sports jacket. Well, I did that because the airlines lost my luggage on the way to Florida. That was all I had to wear. In any case, that nickname stuck with me for my short tenure on that band. I thought it would be kind of fun to self-reattach that title here for reasons that might become apparent if you follow this podcast around later on. The premise of the show is as follows. Yes, there are many famous studio musicians from the coasts who are reasonably high profile. However, there are legions of brilliant musicians from outside of those rarefied environments who are just as good, but don't get the recognition they so richly deserve. This is my attempt in my own little way to mitigate that situation. By virtue of the subtitle, these are musicians who should be household names, but for one reason or another, might not be. There is a secondary function to this show. That is to inspire newer musicians with some wisdom to hopefully develop their own careers and lives around the notion that la vie bohème is not a must-do, so to speak. You can be a musician and still lead a normal life of family, home, and love. The starving artist model is not the only way to go. Before we get started, I need to take care of some business here. First, as a professional trumpeter, I am an endorsing artist. I play Wedge Mouthpieces, designed and manufactured by Dave Harrison of British Columbia. I also play and Trumpets, manufactured in Elkhorn, Wisconsin. And I couldn't be happier with that combination. Next, I am operating an independent online music business. To find out more, just visit my website, www.nickdrawsoff.com. That's www.nickdrawsoff.com. Finally, I, or we, am, or are, if you will, (laughs) are looking for sponsors. Initially, I've opened the merch page to sell products to raise funds, primarily for the Variable D Postulate Ensemble. This is an independent performance group of my own creation. Just visit the website to learn more. Sponsorship also supports my work with this podcast. None of the funds from sponsorship support goes into my pocket. As a retired schoolteacher, I have a modest pension, and I can survive with that. The sponsorship funds go directly into supporting online video performances of the VDPE. I pay the musicians, and that's currently coming out of my pocket. My pension can only go so far. So I am reaching out by way of self-managed crowdfunding to support this endeavor. In my humble opinion, we are in an era of cultural crisis. Pop music is, by and large, driven by two bottom lines. How much money can it make in a short period of time, and how easy is it to sell to the least common denominator in the artistic quality of the music? Okay, I most definitely do not believe that all pop music is bad. Certainly some is really quite good. However, true art music, music made to produce sheer beauty... By decorating some time with some amazing sounds has fallen on hard times. I think it's important to support indie bands, local musicians, wherever your locality might be, and out-of-the-box thinking with online music. This is what I am trying to do. If you want to support art music in cyberspace, please consider supporting our My Effort. I'm switching back and forth between uh, plural and singular pronouns because in the end, this is not going to be a solo effort on my part. I will be engaging the support of some amazing people. So if you own a music store and want to get a plug-in on a show, or if you're an independent instrument manufacturer, or if you own any type of business, within reason of course, and are interested in both supporting this effort and getting a little bit of exposure, I hope you'll give us me a chance. Okay, that's it for today's promo. Now on to my first show. My first guest is a brilliant commercial lead uh, trumpeter, Dave Frolicstein. He's recorded many radio and TV jingles, albums, and played many Broadway shows as part of the Schubert Theater Pit Orchestra. He's performed with Diana Ross as lead trumpet and performed with such artists as Tony Bennett, Ella Fitzgerald, Benny Goodman, Doc Everson, Frank Sinatra, Frankie Valley, to name only a few. Dave received his bachelor's and master's degrees in music from Northern Illinois University. On a more personal level, I got to know Dave when I first surfaced in the Chicago area and began subbing on the legendary jazz consortium big band at Dirty Nellie's Irish Pub in Palatine, Illinois. Both Nelly's and the J.C. Big B have been fixtures in the Chicago area for decades. Getting even more personal, Dave was a trumpeter at my wedding, and I had the honor of being the trumpeter at his wedding, both some 39 years ago. Okay, in case you didn't do the math on all of this, Dave and I are both baby boomers. This should help give some perspective on the discussion that ensues here. Before we get to the interview, let's hear Dave playing live at a couple of recent concerts with local big bands. Here he is playing Bridge Over Troubled Waters, and I can't get started. Dave, thanks for being here today. I really appreciate uh, you coming out to do my first little, yeah. my first little show. I'm honored. My, uh, my the whole thing I wanted to do with this is to uh, just share with people what it is to be a musician uh, from different generations. It's kind of hard to believe that we're actually the older generation of musicians now. I remember when we were both the kids in the block? Uh, so um, it came into my head to do this, and I've, I'm just so thrilled that you could be the first guy to. Kind of break the ice with all of this. So um, one of the, I have a list of questions I'm going through I'm, for those in the, in the audience who are uh, wondering what this is all about. And I'm going to go through this and talk to Dave about what it's been like to be a professional musician all, all, over all the years that we've been uh, working around Chicago together. So when did you decide to make music your life's work, and how did you know it was something you wanted to do?
1: Well, I would say in high school... Um that's when I probably started to think that would be a great way to make a living. Um, I went to Newtruer West High School. We did have a really good jazz band and the band jazz band director as well as the concert band director, they were all really good. We had a really good jazz band, so I started to get very interested in it at that time. I listened to a lot more music starting around sophomore year is when I really started to focus on the different type of music that was out there, but um, jazz was definitely what i was most interested in um, at that point i probably already had figured out that i would love to be on the tonight show band With <laughs> yeah, that was absolutely my dream so yeah um, i think for a lot of us it was probably, yeah no there was no question especially um, if you were a
0: trumpet player yeah
1: doc severinson was my absolute favorite all-around trumpet player um absolutely by He's far still amazing still yeah amazing. so he was my most influential trumpet player that was a you know top professional and then I was lucky enough to have really good teachers pretty much from the the beginning of when I started playing I started in fourth grade age nine and um, really just did it because I was interested in um, civil war actually at the time really so I um, wanted to play bugle calls and um, oh, that's that's okay. literally the reason I picked the trumpet no no other reason behind it and the Tijuana brass was kind of an important yeah, uh, influence around okay. that time so it just seemed to be um, a, a good start to music, and um, then I just continued with it. I didn't practice basically ever, I hate to say it, which really was very <laughs> nearsighted of me. I came home and played baseball every day after school or football or hockey or whatever the sport of the day was, <laughs> and um, just played, I didn't really woodshed a lot. Um about maybe freshman year in high school. I started lessons then with Bert Tobias. Oh yeah. And oh. that was um that was a great um help to me because he was such a wonderful human, much less trumpet player and yeah. just person in general and um very influential in a lot of ways. Great teacher and um he handled my personality at the time quite well. I was even more immature back then than I am now. <laughs> Hard to believe, I know. The growing up isn't what it's cracked up be. <laughs> exactly. I'd rather stay young. <laughs> so Bert was great and um he just really gave us a lot of good direction. There wasn't um a lot of polished classical trumpet playing as much as how to become a trumpet player and maybe learn how to make a living at it because there was clearly Hmm. less opportunity than to be, you know, the the Adolf Herseth of the symphony or to do that type of stuff. And that wasn't my interest. I really was very focused on being in the Tonight Show Band or something like that. Or a studio player. No question. A studio player, absolutely. A commercial musician so that I could, in essence work during the days and basically be home at night like a regular human or go out and play somewhere at night that was what i wanted to do no question about it
0: my head was in the same place very interesting very interesting How did you start working? How did your career actually begin? So I
1: was at NIU. I went to Northern Illinois, Ron Modell, and Ron Friedman actually became very influential about that time. And so Ron Friedman and Ron Modell recruited. Did Ron uh, Friedman go to Northern? Ron was a grad assistant at that time. But my junior year, my sophomore year, rather, going into junior year in high school, um, Ron Modell and... Um, ron friedman came to New Trier west and played um, their they had a brass quintet mm-hmm. and um they then did stuff with the jazz band at that time um at high school jazz band at nutria west and um so at that point they kind of stayed focused on me and recruited uh me and actually brad bohm who was at the time also I went we brad. went to school together so brad was one year ahead of me mm-hmm and the The funny story there is that um, I would walk past his house from like fourth, fifth, and sixth grade, especially mm-hmm. every day coming home from elementary school, and he lived very close to the elementary school, and he was already upstairs in his room practicing. <laughs> He took lessons from a guy named Norm Bakehouse, who I never really knew, but he was a really great trumpet player and great teacher, and Brad was extremely serious about trumpet at that time and extremely good, (laughs) and I, like I said earlier, was going home and playing sports every day after school and (laughs) messing around with my friends, and the last thing I was doing was practicing the trumpet. A balanced lifestyle. Yeah. 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 So um, Brad and I both went to the... um, northern illinois summer band camp which was jazz band and concert band mm-hmm. so i was going into my junior year in high school and brad was going into his senior year and um so we were both in the programs there and um, brad and i played in the concert band together fred finnell was the uh oh um, director conductor <laughs> and um then they had the jazz band and uh ron free or ron modell um did the jazz band So that was a great experience, and that's where I met Brian O'Flaherty. He was in Geneva, Illinois, and one year behind me. We're only a few months apart, but I was a end of November birthday, and um, so we got people
0: who were kind of not from around here. Who was Brian O'Flaherty? I actually remember Brian.
1: So Brian lived in Geneva, Illinois, and um, was a really good trumpet player. I didn't know him until we went to the jazz band camp together, and we stayed close friends really since that day. Wow! And that's uh, well. A lot of, a lot of years. It was nineteen, probably seventy-two or three. Wow. Yeah. And um, so Brian went on. um, Actually, he took my place. Then at NIU, when I finished my graduate year at NIU, Um, Brian came in from um, either Vandercook or Roosevelt at that point, and and he um, took my spot as the grad assistant at NIU. Wow. Okay. And then I was uh, playing.
0: Cool, man. Very so interesting stuff.
1: So you asked, the, the, back to your real question, how yeah. did I get started playing? Yeah. So while I was at NIU, um, Ron Friedman was my teacher the first two years, and then Ron Modell the last three years, because I did my grad, assist, my grad um, degree at NIU as well. And um, so... Ron Friedman was a working musician in town by that time and going back and forth to teach lessons and classes at NIU, but still lived kind of more in the Chicago area. And um, so Ron and I became good good buddies, good friends, and Ron started to recommend me for different things while I was still at NIU. Mm -hmm. And mostly I was playing in pretty much any rehearsal band that would be out there. Mm -hmm. So I started subbing and then playing regularly at um, Weiss Wool's Pub. That was Monday nights. That was the off night back in the day when there was a lot of work.
0: What band was that? That
1: was Roger Pemberton's band. Roger
0: Pemberton band. Yeah,
1: he took over for Dave Remington, and that's when I started playing with Roger's band. Both
0: significant names in the big band scene. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: And it was great. The uh, We had a great trumpet section, and it was a lot of Who's fun. Who was in the trumpet section? So I played lead. Um, Marty Marshak played Gosh. second and jazz. Um, usually Doug Scharf or Art Davis played third, and then Art Hoyle played fourth, usually. Again,
0: Chicago, Chicago legends, very heavy section.
1: Yeah, and Orbert cool. used to come in, and um, he was at DePaul. He was a couple years oh, younger than great. me. So he would come in and want to sit in the band, and you know he played with the band fairly often. And um, you know, obviously, he's gone on to really great things. What would you say would be
0: your first big break, if you would call it that, in the uh, well, as a musician, because you were doing it full time for yeah. quite a while.
1: Oh yeah, so I was still at NIU and um, playing fairly often. Then by that time, because once you started playing around town, if you were able to play stuff, people would. You know want to have you around more so I was getting hired much more often and driving back and forth to NIU playing with various um, groups at that time you know jobbing dates they called them back then sometimes shows and I got to meet um, many players and one person in particular that I started to get to know pretty well was Ed St. Peter he was a working musician around town and um, he had gone to DePaul and so he and I started working together a fair amount with different Uh, leaders around town and ed started working um, or maybe already by then was already working at the schubert theater and there was a trumpet player there bill worthen who went to ni or northwestern he went to northwestern and bill was playing first trumpet at the schubert theater and ed was playing the second part and i don't know um who else might have been playing it then leon ruby was around at that time as well But the show Evita was there when I was still I maybe a um, graduate uh, school. I think Avita was probably there. Wow. So it was um, or maybe 1978 or 9, right in that area. Yeah. Yeah. And um, Ed St. Peter um, knew that Bill Worthen was going to leave early, like the last six weeks of the show, and I don't remember if he was stopping playing or just not wanting to play at the Schubert anymore. I honestly don't remember the story all that well. But um, Ed nicely recommended me to the contractor. Who was the contractor? Leo Krakow. Oh, yeah. He was there the whole oh time I was, actually. Yeah. yeah. He was a uh, violinist in town. Or Oh, yeah. And um, so Ed nicely recommended me, and um, I came and played the show and basically played at the Schubert really until I got out of the business full time. Really? Yeah. Wow. So, you know, in my head, uh, I never really thought of you as a theater player.
0: Uh, I was thinking of you as playing all the recording sessions like Contract and um, some of the other, some of the I can't remember some of the contractors now. The contract is one that's popping into my head. But you know, were you doing jingle sessions too? Yeah,
1: not not the not the high level I would have wanted to. Yeah. It was just really getting kinda of starting to phase out, which is yeah. you know, where the business started to really change. Um, I mean I did some, but not as much as I would have wanted to to probably say, you know, I'll stay in this business. Five or ten more years. Mm-hmm. If mm-hmm. I um, if it had that kind of um, ability, then I would have loved to. That's what I wanted to do. That was yeah. that was really all I wanted to do.
0: Yeah, that was kind of where my head was. At. I wanted to be a studio musician. Yeah, and uh, things kind of got a little little weird. <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, we'll talk about yeah. that. Yeah. It's, it's it's part of what you've got in here, and, yeah. and I I will definitely talk about that.
0: You're talking about the. Um, uh, See the, the Soul band the Roger Pemberton band and you've you've been playing with a Dirty Nellies band for yeah um, are, are there any other big bands you know, that you play that run Chicago or did you um, do any touring with any other of the so called road bands and name bands and stuff did you do anything with that
1: well i actually never went on the road i yeah. turned down going on the road and really? the only reason is because i was luckily busy enough in town yeah, um, yeah. it's that simple but i was blessed
0: i'm dying though who'd you turn down
1: sticks believe it or not
0: really oh danny barber ended up doing <laughs> yeah, that. yeah
1: danny did oh, it oh wow and mark <laughs> olson right? and mark olson i you
0: know, turned down sticks huh yeah. Okay. <laughs> but so, I was working. Yeah. And exactly. it was like yeah. one of
1: those things where um I was just married. Yeah. And yeah. um it didn't. way yes. Nick nicely played at my wedding, our wedding, Carol's and my wedding and thirty eight and a half years ago.
0: Yeah, yeah, about the same time when you played And I played I just, it. I yours. found a picture of you playing at my wedding, which was kind of fun. Um but interesting. Interesting. Well what, what what would you say it was was like playing on those big bands back then?
1: What was the experience like playing in big bands and back well, when there were so many of them around Chicago? Um, I would say that that was great experience. It helped you sort of stay in um, in a. It kept your level of playing high enough with the you know upper register stuff because you mm-hmm. can't simulate it at home, in my opinion. That's yeah. the hardest thing with now when I try to go play. Um, practicing at home is just not it's the same. It's not the same. Not mm-hmm. at all. It's not the but, same. But um, I would say the best experience I had was actually playing with Norm Crone, who was a, um, <laughs> a leader around town. He had a... a jobbing. He, band, really. Yes. Yeah. And he had a lot of show work. Uh-huh. So... Oh, yeah. yeah. Maybe one to three days a week, we were pretty much doing something that had a rehearsal and a show for now, a name band.
0: Rehearsal and a show, can you explain to our listeners what that's all about?
1: Well, um... Some name act. It could be anybody would come into town, and they would add on or completely use Chicago musicians, and they would play their their act or their show and for it could a corporate
0: events or something. It like?
1: could have been a corporate event. Most of most of Norm's stuff would have been a corporate event. Mm-hmm. So it might have been a you know one night at the Hilton downtown yeah. or yeah. you know one of the other big hotels. And we would go in probably around two o'clock that day, do a up to three hour rehearsal, and then from five o'clock till eight o'clock showtime we would go eat dinner and not you know, not have to be there.
0: <laughs> it's interesting they talk about rehearsal and a show in this context. Uh school musicians. Now, particularly in high school maybe to a lesser extent in college but definitely in high school rehearse the same music over and over again every day for week in week, in, week out when you get into the professional scene you don't have that you got what two or three hour rehearsal and you have gotta have it down ready for the show at night uh, yeah. do you ever feel like there was a little pressure there or do you feel like that's something that well
1: uh, it it was expected, and that was what I had geared for all along, was yeah. to be able to just have something put in front of me and hopefully be able to just, play it. But it, within reason. Nobody yeah. would expect you to play something that was extremely difficult mm-hmm. without some kind of a rehearsal right. or looking at it. And they would rarely throw something like that at you with an expectation of perfection. But you know, once you started playing it, it was expected to be pretty much as it should have been at the performance.
0: This kind of goes right into the next question I had in mind. When you first got started, what did you see as the necessary survival skills to be a musician?
1: Being able to read. Sight read the music, play in tune, work well with others, show up on time, (laughs) be friendly, don't have an attitude, don't do stuff that is not musical. The whole point, at all times, at least my focus was, it's music, Mm -hmm. so you want to play music. And I think a lot of people lose sight of that with just in general, they, you know, hot dog or they, you know, want to be the grandstander on something. And um, typically that doesn't go over well. Yeah. And um, at the end of the day, um, a, a studio musician, unless he was the soloist and being featured, would have been in the background. And yeah. kind of not really noticeable, but obviously it was perfect. And it was what I was focused on.
0: Um, you mentioned Norm Crone. Uh, I worked a few times for Norm. I remember Norm being like so many of those uh, seasons, uh, old-timer jobbing musicians. He seemed like he knew every tune ever. Um, Can you comment a little (laughs) bit about knowing tunes? That was
1: absolutely something. Um, So John Moe is a trombone player in town. He and I uh, were actually roommates before I got married. And John and I um, played on Norm's band pretty regularly, and we were by far the young guys on the band. Um, There was no question, Norm's band was definitely one of the bands that didn't have music for pretty much anything that had to do with, we're going to play this song. Mm -hmm. And we could have done pretty much every college song that was out there, every state (laughs) song that was there, and... Any jobbing tune, you could open up a jobbing book, and if there was a song in there, it was something their band could do. And they would harmonize the parts. So one of the other trumpet players was usually Don Sohan, who you know quite well. Don Sohan knows everything. Don knew every song on the planet. He's, He's amazing. And so John Mose and I both had to really learn songs that we didn't know existed. And we did. We learned songs that um, were invaluable because then as the years went by in the business, we would know the songs, which was kind of unusual for a young guy. Comment on the
0: attitude of these seasoned musicians. If a young musician were to walk in with a fake book and put it on the bandstand and open it up.
1: Well, it probably would have gotten a laugh and it would have been a sign of... Um, Inexperience, <laughs> but in fairness, um, yeah. I would respect a person that at least t- made the attempt to not then that play so poorly. That right, they, yeah, right. so um, but no, nobody would show up with the uh, a fake book at that point. And yeah. we weren't playing jazz tunes; we were playing no. you know well-known like nineteen thirties, forties, fifties, and sixties kind of show Dance tunes or and, pop and Irving something. Berlin to yeah. uh, you know Gershwin. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, things are a little different now in that regard, but I, you know, and not necessarily worse, but just certainly different. Now the show is called Duets from the Trenches. Musicians often get together just to have a bit of fun, blowing through some duets. So we play through a bunch of duets when they've got here just for a little musical fun before we got into the heart of the discussion. Here's our recording of the duet on The Man on the Flying Trapeze by Alfred Lee, arranged for two trumpets by Lenny Niehaus. One of those trumpets was a legendary high note artist, Buddy Brisboy. Dave is playing the part of Buddy Brisboy, of course. did you experience or feel you can comment on during all of this? Any, any, any things that were... You've kind of commented a little bit about the hotdogging and the uh, maybe just taking care of business, but are there any pitfalls or uh, uh, minefields that a musician back then needed to watch out for?
1: Well, being unprepared would have been a pitfall. Yeah. Um, you know, being hired for something or accepting something that you were clearly not capable of or you would have had a bad um, end result it would have tainted your reputation maybe severely so um, in my opinion back when I was probably playing and really making my living at it Mm -hmm. um, I rarely would would have been called to do something that wasn't expected of me to be able to play so if it was a Very heavy classical, you know, transposition, all these um, instruments that, you know, I didn't even own. I didn't have an E flat. I played all that stuff in college, but I didn't play that stuff when I was professionally playing because there was 15 other people that were expected to do that. Just like those guys typically wouldn't say, hey, I'll play lead at Weiss Fools or on that show at the, uh, you know, whatever theater I was playing at.
0: Know your limitations, I guess.
1: Well, but there was, you know, Art Davis would have played the jazz if I was on the gig with him. I wouldn't have said, hey, Art, let me play that.
0: Yeah, I get you. And
1: Art wouldn't have said, let me play lead on that. So Uh there was enough work and there was enough hired musicians that you didn't have to be the jack of all trades, which I think is one of your questions coming up, that you would have wanted to be able to play everything pretty much possible now because they're so so much less work and yeah. still so many people wanting to do it
0: yeah it's yeah well definitely some thoughts we can touch on there here's a hot potato uh did you decide to get a day gig
1: well it's very simple how i did um so i was playing steady at the schubert theater and it was at the time just like it is today actually mm-hmm. a theater job was kind of <laughs> the the really good steady money now back then uh, someone who was so busy in the theater or in the um, in the studios would have probably not jumped on the opportunity to play a theater Mm -hmm. gig Mm -hmm. and i completely understand it where the world today is the used to be busy studio players are very happy to be able to be mm-hmm. on whatever theater gig there is yeah. and New York's a great example of that the you know Tony Cadillac would be a great example yeah, yeah. he's you know phenomenal player mm-hmm. um, certainly one of the busiest trumpet players in New York City but um, unfortunately he's very committed to having I mean, to make a living still yeah. Yeah. and being on a theater gig is by far one of the better mm-hmm. ways mm-hmm. to have a steady paycheck
0: yeah
1: So, you asked about me getting out of the business, though. Yeah. So, it was unfortunately a simple, um, hard lesson, but a simple uh, situation for me. So, I was playing steady at the theaters, and the politics of music started to definitely enter into it. Hmm. Um, There was a particular trumpet player in town who specifically was opposite of how I would have played much less and mentally would have behaved and just in general it was a completely opposite person Mm -hmm. but he was very focused on working and doing what it took to get hired so unfortunately for me um, it created the issue of that person supplanting me on the first trumpet part first trumpet paid more uh, per week and then it also a lot of times had a double which mm. also paid more so yeah. at that point in time the first trumpet parts had a piccolo trumpet double on just you know six notes or ten notes mm-hmm. and it paid probably about 80 bucks a month a week more rather at the time it's not and as significant it, it's, back then. well it's like 250 dollars yeah. a week today yeah. and then the first trumpet part paid about 80 bucks a month or a week more also wow. So, again, so at that time, was about a $7,000 increase in pay to pay play the first trumpet part at that time.
0: Yeah, even though that happened back then.
1: Yes, you? and so um, here's, here's the part that was probably the hardest pill to swallow. That person lived at home with his parents and had only an obligation, as he would constantly let us know, to buy a baker square pie once a week, and that was about <laughs> it, and... Um, i on the other hand had already been married five years at that time Mm -hmm. had a house in the suburbs two cars two kids and my wife was an at-home mom yeah so i had a little different outlook on life at that point certainly yeah and um As difficult as it was at that very moment to really realize that I had no control on my future, it didn't matter if I thought or I really was. Either way, it didn't matter the better trumpet player. Uh It was not me that was hired to play the first trumpet part, and therefore I made much less money, and it was a very difficult pill to swallow. The good news is I didn't get completely... I didn't go into a little cubby hole and cry about it. Yeah. I had to look very, very seriously at what my ability to earn a living based on my ability to be a better player was. And I realized that, you know, 10 or 20 years from now, there is no way that I would want to be trying to be uh, political or cutthroat and all mm-hmm. that. I just couldn't do it yeah. ever. So I had to make some very difficult decisions. And at that point, while the show was going on, I... Um, My parents had already moved, by the way, when I was a junior in college. They moved back to St. Louis, where I was originally born, but never really lived. Yeah. And um, so they moved back there. My brother and I stayed in Illinois. He had just graduated um, college. So we got an apartment in, at that time, Mount Prospect. And I stayed at NIU and um, continued through school. And then when I graduated NIU, um, the year or so before I got married... um, John Mose and I lived together mm-hmm. at that time and then, um, you know, moved on. And so I looked forward at that point to what I could do for a living. Um, I had already been very interested in investing. I had been self-employed my whole life, so mm-hmm. I had to understand and learn about insurance because I had to buy my own health insurance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I researched things and I um, was interested in having control on my life. So I um, went into the financial services business, and while the show going on, I got insurance licensed, and I got um, securities licensed.
0: Did you go out and do some uh, post grad study to do that? Did
1: you I, go to school? I studied to become a certified financial planner and mm-hmm. took classes for that. While wow. I, wow. and that's he had a, to have two. That's years. tough, man. It was very hard. Yeah. I was gone twenty four seven. I was still teaching lessons. I was, <laughs> I was playing whatever gigs yeah. I could get. I was playing the. Show. And I was studying to become a certified financial planner and yeah, getting series hard. seven licensed and insurance licensed all during that. And so the show ended May thirtieth, nineteen eighty-six, and June first uh-huh. was the next day on a Monday. I was in an office in Geneva, Illinois. I had already had it all set up. I literally was starting it was that my full fast. career. Literally I had it all set up. Wow. The day ended, the next day I was in the insurance and financial services business full time, so I played music the first Man. several years. I was given an opportunity to stay in the music business uh-huh. to earn my living. Carol stayed home. we had a, at that point a two and a four year old who are now mm. thirty four and thirty six <laughs> and now we have a 20 and a twenty eight year old daughter at this time oh, now my. so um yeah thirty three years later here I am well, you kind of cover a little bit you played a little bit, but did you take a hiatus? yeah, so one? probably to, till about nineteen eighty five I probably stayed semi-active. Um I still played a fair amount of shows. They weren't the longer runs because I was too busy, so I would play a one week or a two week show usually at the Chicago Theater back then. Kenny Soderbloom had um the contract then and it would have a lot of different shows come in and they would be for about a week at a time here and there and it was some really great acts. It was a great um great ability to still play mm-hmm. and um yeah so I still played a fair amount and um didn't See, you, didn't play you, then you never that. really stopped i did stop i stopped playing for about almost well we've been playing at Dirty Nellies about eight years now, and uh-huh. that's when I started playing again really okay I so i stopped playing until about um from about the year probably nineteen eight nineteen ninety eight or so is when I think I stopped playing yeah until about two thousand um maybe close to two thousand eight so almost well. Fifteen years about is how long I stopped playing, as far as I remember, and then um, yeah, I tried to get back into playing when a bunch of friends said you should start playing again, and I thought, yeah. why not? It came back huge. I gotta tell you. Well, you're being kind. It was not extremely frustrating because the first first six months, um, I was very frustrated with it. Uh-huh. Um, I would say it was very similar to if you're um, if you could play really good golf let's say you shoot in the high 60s low 70s and now you come back after not playing for 15 years and you shoot you know 88 92 <laughs> 104 or if you were a weightlifter and really could oh you know do a lot of good weightlifting and then you just picked it up again and it's like oh my god i can't do any of this yeah it was extremely frustrating and it, t- it took about two years till i got to a point where i think all right i'm feeling a lot better about this well
0: in my humble opinion i think you've excelled beyond where I remember your well I, I
1: will say that I feel like I play better now yeah. than I did back then but I'm practicing oh, there is yeah, a that's, difference <laughs> that's an
0: interesting thought there's obviously some pressure and stress when you're playing to support your family when the music uh, and your music work means whether or not your family eats that week so to speak um, but that's not attached to your music anymore does that make a difference for you about how you feel about making music now uh, if it's no longer um how you put food on the table but you're still a professional musician at heart does it affect uh, does it make it better for you as a musician to think of it that way now
1: yeah, it's a great question so my quick answer would be i have a much more relaxed feeling about everything with music now mm-hmm. because it's not something i'm trying to make my living doing but i always want to make it musical yeah yeah. So yeah. Uh, the pressure is different because I'm not making a living at it, but I truly want it to sound good at the end of the day. So it's
0: about the art now. That's, Absolutely. Okay. That's very cool. That's very cool. Um, okay. We've covered we've a lot. Over the past 40 years, music's changed in, in ways that are mind boggling. Um, uh, what would you describe as the necessary survival skills today if you had to talk to a 20-something musician getting out of college
1: what would you want to tell him or her well if i was that person today and i know what i know now Uh i would say absolutely positively i'd want to be able to play the lead part and the jazz part Mm -hmm. and read really well yeah those three things would give me an opportunity to fit in pretty much any scenario of the commercial music, which is what I would have wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't want to be a classical trumpet player, frankly. Um, I enjoy it, but to me, um, something that I've realized over the years is being able to um, have an ability to play improvised music where you're not just interpreting what's on the page, but creating something mm-hmm. is very um, enlightening and very Liberating, which is something I never took seriously enough back in the day, and I really wish I had because I love playing jazz. I'm just not good at it, but I really like it, and I want to get a lot better at it. Um, that's something I really enjoy.
0: That's interesting. There's, uh, the learning never stops. Exactly right. And I think that's what makes it so fun. Yeah, I mean, that's,
1: that's, Sometimes you learn what you don't want to do when you hear someone. Many yeah. times you hear what you wish you could do. So you've got you to have an open mind. Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
0: exactly. Um, consider music and art. This same age, wildly changing landscape in the music business. You know, how does competition impact the
1: camaraderie of making music? Is that still something that's an issue these days? Well, competition I would look at differently than... The music of what we're trying to do, mm-hmm. so there's kind of a two separate answers um, if there's more musicians and less music, then it tends to get more competitive, yeah. and some people embrace the competition and welcome other players that are superior to them mm-hmm. and I think confident people can do that. I think people that are not um, as confident with their abilities or they're um, not confident with how um, much music they can get and what kind of work they can get, aren't going to maybe recommend players and they're going to maybe send someone that is not as good as them. That's interesting. That's how I've seen it over the years. Yeah. Um, I I would say that um, the really confident and um, strong musicians in any you know any instrument not just trumpets but i think someone who um, is very comfortable with their ability is very willing to send someone in that's going to do as good or a better job Yeah. yeah and other people are going to make sure that they send someone who's able to do the job but won't make them look like they're not the better players still yeah and um you know to me you want to send someone who's as good or better if you can because i think it shows respect for the leader of the band and the rest of the musicians
0: yeah um that's kind of interesting question that i'm throwing at you right now given our conversation previously this will go out just to listen to other musicians even locals
1: do i yeah um, I enjoy that. Yeah. Um, I've come to hear you play. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> I I do like to hear music. I don't go as often, and, and I don't hear as much as I would like to. Yeah. I listen all the time. So, kind of, I think you and I have talked about yeah. this, Nick. When I practice, I tend to have the computer on, and yeah. I just surf, yeah. and I type in various subjects. Many times, I typed in trumpet masterclass, and I yeah. just go at it. Sometimes I. I just type in something that is of interest and I just keep, you know, seeing where it leads. And um, I enjoy that a lot. And it forces me to rest. Otherwise, I just don't rest. (laughs) So it's a good thing that if if I do that. Claude Gordon would be proud of that. Yeah, Claude
0: Gordon would be. (laughs) Um, All right. Concluding question. Uh, Premise. We want to encourage newer musicians to pursue their dreams. How would you advise them to do this wisely in this day and age? You know, 20-somethings nowadays
1: coming out of college. Right. Well, I did get my master's degree, and I only did it because, um, so I got my undergrad, I should say, first in education. And I did that in four years at NIU. And then I was given an opportunity to be a grad assistant where they paid for the school and gave me a stipend per month as long as I taught a few classes and maybe some lessons, that kind of a thing. And I was given an ability to do my master's in one year if I went through the summer. And um, I did do that. And I knew that if I didn't do it then, I would never go back to school Mm -hmm. just because I was already working a fair amount. And I also knew that if I ever did teach, um, having a master's degree would be a big help because then I could teach at a college. Mm -hmm. And I kind of thought that's about the only level I would have wanted to teach Mm -hmm. Um, just from you know the standpoint that I I felt that was the most serious level, yeah. and I felt it gave me the most opportunity. I saw what other college professors were able to do. They could take a sabbatical. They could kind of call their own shots. It didn't seem like that would be um, as restrictive. So that's why I did it. I never did teach at a um, at that level. I did use my teaching certificate to get a one fifth teaching. Um, like uh, I don't remember what they called it back then but at Hinsdale Central High School okay. which yes. also Ed St. Peter helped me get into by the way <laughs> so thank you again Ed if you ever hear this um, he's a great guy by the way so he stopped teaching trumpet lessons there um, when I was kind of getting out of college and recommended me so I started teaching the trumpet lessons at that school and I also taught at uh, Downers Grove North eventually and then at Romeoville High School those are the three schools I taught lessons wow. Yeah. And I had about twenty students at my my max, and it was way more than I should have had it was, <laughs> it was it was it was lot of work it was draining, students, yeah, yeah because I was working a lot yeah and um you know I had to be at hinsdale central um I had to be there at like seven something in the morning, mm-hmm. three or four days a week, so I did not hang out with all the guys after gigs every <laughs> night, and I got a lot of, i got razed a lot for that. But. <laughs> I'm still happily married 38 and a half years yeah, sorry, later, you, so you, I think it worked out. out <laughs> he came out of yeah, yeah. But I would recommend, if anything, um, unless you're so gifted and you can do a solo career, yeah, which would be incredibly great, and if you can make your living just playing your trumpet or a musical yeah, instrument at yeah. all, uh, I think it'd be great. I would not have um, stopped any of my kids from pursuing a musical career mm-hmm. Um, all three of them have gone into something that they've been passionate about, which is really very important to Carol and me. Yeah, yeah. And um, I would say, if you're going to want to play and have, I guess, a real income, probably you'd have to be a teacher if yeah. you want to stay in music or have a day day job and yeah. hopefully um, play it, you know, as much as you can. Yeah, yeah. I don't know a better way right now. And and I know, you know, some of the finest players that were out there back in the day and. If they stayed with music and didn't get a, another job um, to su- support themselves and build a career, it, it, I would say it would—it's a very difficult life, and it's not something that I was prepared to have. And I focused differently. Yeah, and I'm glad I did. Unfortunately, to say it, but um, if I hadn't, I think. Things would have been a lot different. I don't think I would have had some of the experiences that I've been able to have. I think my kids would have had a different upbringing. I think it would have been a much more difficult life. Yeah, yeah.
0: More stressful. I I, kind of felt myself going down the same road in a lot of ways. Yeah. But uh, man, Dave, I can't tell you how. Grateful I am
1: to be able to talk to you about this today. Um, well, I'm thrilled you had me at all. Much less to be your first guest. I'm well, honored. Thank you. No, this is uh, we this go is, way back. Oh, definitely,
0: <laughs> definitely way back.
1: T- tell everybody a little about when you and I first worked together back in the day. Oh, you came man. on the scene, and um,
0: I, I showed up. At, I think we first met at Dirty Allies, I believe. Probably. And yeah. um, uh, I believe I was one of the kind of crazy obnoxious. Players. I remember getting a beer poured over my head one night. Not were from you, me. Were you there for I that? don't
1: remember. That's, you've told me about <laughs> yeah,
0: it. Yeah, I um, was doing some, I'm sure I was doing something stupid um, because I was so eager and so unschooled um, uh, and that. Uh, um, uh, so I just, it's, uh, it was an interesting experience getting kind of laid out periodically. I, I kind of learned uh, by hard knocks, but um, I was always so impressed with your playing, you know, Lee Trumpet with that band. And I, I, man, I was just always thrilled to get a chance to sub, even, you know, on any chair in there just to get to be able to say, hey, I'm working with these guys. And um, uh, it uh, just bumping into you on shows, I've been Benny Rosengard, Ben, Ro- ben Arden, uh, We used to uh, do some shows you would play sometimes. Bears band. Um,
1: I never went up to a Green Bay, but I know you you all did.
0: did, I did a bunch of those shows (laughs) up in Green Bay. Um, That's kind of a long commute. I commute up there a lot now, but Mm -hmm. uh, uh, back then it was uh, uh, with what was it? The Carlton Dinner Theater. Carlton, yeah. yeah, Yeah. yeah. I would
1: do the Playboy Club with him sometimes up in Lake Geneva.
0: Yeah, and I did a few gigs with Noir Krohn mm-hmm. um, although I worked for Joe Vito yeah Joe more worked than a lot with him uh, yeah. but um, yeah but there was uh, a lot of
1: work back then
0: there, there was a lot pretty much all up. the
1: hotels had something either with conventions that at that point you had live musicians yeah and there were shows at a lot of the hotels. They had theaters. So the Blue Max was at the Hyatt Regency O'Hare. Yeah, yeah. That was a busy place yeah, to play. I played there a And there. then um, the theaters in the city. And mm-hmm. then there was a lot of um, kind of the. Mill Run? Yeah. yeah, Mill Run. I worked there a yeah. lot. Yeah. It was a great experience. Oh, yeah, yeah.
0: Um, it was interesting. I, me- I-, I remember going in my car after gigs late at night and running into musicians mm-hmm. on the street or going up to to a place called... Uh, you Miller's. Miller's, or, or Mel Markins up north on the north side. Um, uh, You'd know, you, you, you bump in the
1: musicians well, all these places. Let's talk about Shulkies for a second. Go ahead. Yeah. That was a big hangout, 529 South Wabash. Oh, that's right. So all the musicians that were trumpet players, trumpet or rather, players all the trumpet, trumpet players, yeah. between shows or other times, we would pretty much just go there and just <laughs> try to... Absorb whatever we could, yeah, and yeah. there were some incredibly great stories, which we don't want to necessarily yeah, go probably into, not. Yeah, but yeah. Reynolds Schilke was a character, and there would always be something Slim, fun. Martin um, Schlimm. Scott Lasky was was oh, yeah. full-time down there, and uh, was a great influence on a lot of uh, oh, a lot trumpet of players. Problems. He um, he designed mouthpieces for I pretty much everybody. a couple, everybody.
0: A couple right over Yeah.
1: over <laughs> well, The one I play right now is just a copy of the one he made me. Really? Yeah. yeah the yeah. Harrelson...
0: I always enjoyed talking to Scott. Yeah. Uh,
1: He always had good ideas and was very opinionated. Yeah. And it was an example of what you said earlier. You know, you you could learn if you wanted to, and Mm -hmm. sometimes it was like, well, that didn't work. But more often than not, Scott was really intuitive and could hear what you wanted to do (laughs) by either you verbally saying or you want to play more like such and such. And he would have an ability to tweak whatever it was. And back in those days, it wasn't a CNC machine. It was a, right. an old-fashioned, you a know, lathe, la- yeah. metal yeah. lathe,
0: yeah. Well, I remember uh, Rick Leister, trumpet Rick, player, sure. buddy of ours, uh, told me once, he said, when you go to Scott, don't tell him what you want. Don't, don't tell him, I want you to do this, this, and this. Tell him what you need to do and put your... Hand, put your um, trust in him. Yeah, trust him. Yeah. And if you do that, you're, and that yeah. was exactly right. I got some of the best mouthpieces out of Scott. My, basically, that said, I'm in your hands. Yeah, I can remember can
1: that my mouthpiece that he made for me, it would have been about 1982 or 3 uh-huh. And it was custom made. It had a screw rim. He actually made two of them. Mm-hmm. And they were, as I recall, $40 to custom make it <laughs> with a screw rim. And it was $8 to gold plate it. Yeah. and i still have the mouthpiece and the gold plates still in really great shape that's about
0: a third of what you have to pay nowadays right oh way more than you know, that yeah, yeah oh
1: no it'd probably it'd be hundreds of dollars oh, yeah, now isn't of it dollars. yeah
0: yeah,
1: yeah. and the gold plating is you know not cheap to oh, just gold plate a mouthpiece insane, so yeah pricing is a little different yeah yeah but okay. it was great to go down to Shilkies back in the day and you never knew who would be there exactly yeah, yeah it was yeah. it was a great experience and um we had a lot of fun back then. Oh,
0: yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, it's interesting. I, I really kind of hope that the um, the next gen, if you will, of mu- uh, musicians that are out there get to have similar experiences, you know, and uh, I'm, I'm sure they will. There's a, uh, I, I run into these guys now with different bands, but um, in any case, what I'm hoping that uh, our conversation can do today is to kind of, you know, put some thought into all of this to uh, give uh, grist for the mill for the um, people who are listening, who are you know serious about their music.
1: Well, and I hope that if nothing else, it just brings them joy with whatever yeah. else they're doing in their lives. Exactly. To me, There's, that's the overriding theme. If you enjoy something, yeah. then you know, frankly, you're happy usually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, music should bring joy to yourself and to others. Yeah, it's the two way street, in that, my opinion. That's
0: actually a real good concluding point. It's got to be for everybody. Yeah. Dave, thanks so much for sitting My
1: pleasure, all right, man.
0: Well, I can't begin to thank Dave Frohlenstein enough for helping me launch my first podcast. I was a thrill to have him here. Uh, all the years we've uh, uh, known each other and worked together, there's a lot of little bits and pieces of his story that uh, filled in a lot of blanks for me, and I found it extremely interesting. Uh, I do hope that any uh, younger musicians who are listening to this show... Uh, can take heed. Uh, Dave is a top-notch player. He sells himself a little short. He is also an excellent, legit player. Uh, he can sit down in a brass quintet or in an orchestra anywhere and fit in just fine. He's still the best sight reader I know, and just a, a brilliant trumpeter with a sound that you, is to die for. He still runs a very successful financial business, uh, Froelichstein Financial Services, out of St. Charles, Illinois. So if that is something you're interested in, you should definitely look him up. So once again, thanks, Dave. Thanks for doing this. Please save this podcast link and check back periodically. I want to have a new show up and running every few weeks. The guests will be multi-generational and diverse. I think it's important to get a broad mix of ideas about musical survival as we ponder all of this. Thanks again for listening. This is the studio man, Nick Drozdoff, saying keep making music.
1: Peace.